Hey, good morning again. We are kicking off a brand new series today, uh, Real Positive, How to Kill the Church. So that's what uh, we're going to make you feel great today. Hey, this uh, coming November, Lana and I will celebrate 20 years as pastor of Forest Park. And across the two decades, we've had amazing seasons and we've had difficult seasons. As with any church, there are ups and downs, easier periods, and it's made of real people with real issues and real problems without all of the religious garb and two-facedness often associated with church. And we've seen a lot of lives impacted and changed for good. We've built families and brought healing to marriages and provided spiritual direction. But the pandemic with the closures and confusion and fears and political divisions and arguments over masks and changing of schedules and people forming new habits on Sunday made these last 16 months tough to navigate. And to be honest, during these last 16, 18 months or so, there were times when doubts would arise and fears would flutter and questions would keep me awake at night. And when they did, I had to lean on a promise Jesus made his followers. In Matthew 16, there's a conversation Jesus has with his disciples. And Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And based on this promise Jesus made so long ago, ultimately, no thing, no person, no movement, no pandemic will ever kill the church. The government won't kill it. Church people won't kill it. Gossip won't kill it. Corrupt pastors won't kill it. Former staff members won't kill it. Politics won't kill it. Masks won't kill it. Facebook won't kill it. Bad preaching comes close, but it will not kill it. Scandals won't kill it. Uh, tyrants have tried. Laws have tried. Religion has tried. Atheists have tried. But nothing in all of creation will destroy the church. Jesus promised he will build it, and history has proven no person, idea, or movement has ever or will ever destroy it. Now, while this is true at the macro level, if you will, the 30,000-foot level, the church around the world, including all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, the church will never be killed. The influence and power of the local church, individual churches, however, ebbs and flows, increases and decreases, rises and falls due to a lot of different factors. We all know that there have been seasons of revivals and there have been seasons of stagnation within local churches. There have been times when people turn their hearts and minds toward God, and there have been times when people have turned their hearts and minds away from God. 
And within our culture, in the Western culture, in the USA, and in prosperous nations like the USA, the church's influence overall is waning. It is declining. It is fading. We have lost a lot of ground. Sad to say, this is not a time of revival. This is not a season of great growth and a forward movement. It's a time of weakness. It's a time of withdrawal. It's a time of slowness. And there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to make you think a little bit at the beginning of this, and I'm going to show you something hopefully that will warm your heart. A lot of the reasons this is true. First reason is aggressive attacks by what is called the new atheists. That's professors and authors and internet gurus attempting to gut people's faith, encouraging people to quit following Jesus and quit following all religion. It's happening in universities and high schools and online. Another factor is the promoting of and the popularizing of deconstruction. That's encouraging people to question everything, doubt everything, pick apart everything, refuse to commit to anything, throw off all religious things. Another reason why is the scandals within the church, affairs and sexual abuse and cover-ups, and we've all read the news stories, we've all seen things uh, on TV and unfortunately read some horror stories of scandals that have taken place in the church across our nation and people covering those scandals up. It's hurt, it's gutted, it's weakened the church at large. And number four, the welding of Christianity to nationalism, the fusing of Jesus with the United States of America, almost as if they are one and the same. It's hurt us. And the last one is the one that I'm going to spend time on, and I'm going to give it to you, not, not the last one there, the one I'm getting ready to give you. And it's one that has bothered me. It is one that has troubled me. It is one that has kept me up sometimes at night, and I'm doing everything I can, and this two-week series is an attempt to combat this final one, and it's this. It's a departure from the proper function and form of the church. In other words, it is a movement away from what the church is or the nature of the church, a denial of its nature. I'll explain. It's an embracing of what we wanted the church to become, and it has greatly backfired. This will help. Now I'm going to pull it down and kind of set it right there where you are. I want to look at a conversation between the disciples and Jesus. And this conversation reveals human nature and why the modern church has failed greatly. This conversation happens between some of the people nearest to Jesus. So these, these people who were talking to Jesus were not strangers to Jesus. They were not hearing of well, uh, the message of Jesus for the first time. These were people who were on the inside. These were people who slept beside Jesus at, at night sometimes, who had meals with Jesus, who talked with him, who touched him, who watched miracles happen. These people knew what was going on. If anybody should get it, these guys should have got it. And this was the conversation that happens in Mark chapter 10. James and John, these two guys, Zebedee's sons, this the writer here is telling us exactly who these men are. If you have questions, go see them. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask, we desire. 
What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They said, allow one of us to sit on your right side and on the other your left side when you enter into glory. And Jesus replied, you don't know what you are asking. James and John basically were saying to Jesus, Jesus, do for us. Give us what we ask for. Allow us to be blessed. And this is the spirit, the attitude infiltrating today's church. What spirit, Scott? That Jesus exists to do for us what we want, to give us what we desire, to meet our needs, to bless our lives, to grant us favors. These guys came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we've listened to all your message. We've heard all about serving people. We've heard all about giving. We've heard all about sacrifice. We've heard all about reaching the world. We've heard all the message that you have given to us, but we got a favor to ask. Sure. Uh, when you come into your glory, can I sit on your right side and can he sit on your left side? Can you do for us what we want you to do for us? Will you meet our needs? Yeah, yeah, we, we understand there's other people who have needs, but we have some things that we really want you to do for us. Will you do these things for us? And when I read that over the last couple of weeks, it jumped out at me that that is the attitude, that is the spirit of a whole lot of our church folks across our nation. Yeah, we know the world's hurting. Yeah, we know, we know there's uh, problems. We know there's issues. We know there's people to be reached. We know there's people hungry. We know there's people who have needs. We, know, but, 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 we, we have some favors to ask of you, Jesus. Would you give us some things? Will you meet our needs? Will you, will, you, will, you, will you meet the things that we want you to do for us? Will you bless our lives? Will you grant us favors? And churches across the nation have played into it and provided what people wanted, and it has failed. And it is why the church is in the mess it is in throughout our nation. Now listen, folks, the church does not exist to help us achieve what we want. The church is not a large self-improvement organization. It's not. You see, James and John were immature, and they were spiritual children, and they were asking what one should expect children to ask. Give me what I want now. The problem is the church is not a system designed to babysit adults who behave like children. The church is a family designed to birth children who grow into and take the responsibilities of adults. Anybody tracking with what I'm saying? The three of you, awesome. We're going to have church, right? But the modern church, and folks, I'm telling you, this is something that has been stirring in me for the last year, all right? So just you're just kind of sitting in on my confession, if you will, in some ways. The modern church derailed when we listened to the requests 
of spiritually immature James and Johns and said, okay, we'll see what we can do to give you what you want. And the problem with giving people what they want is they keep wanting more. And eventually the local church can no longer give them all the things they want. You see, the church fell off when we began seeing people as customers. You know the sign when you walk into businesses that says the customer is always right? We began seeing people as customers. And it's about making people comfortable and happy and pleased and entertained and wowed. And then we got shocked when the church filled up with consumers. Because when you attract customers, you get consumers. So you want to know how to kill the church? The first way you kill a church is you fill it with consumers. People who show up to consume what is offered and leave a tip on the way out. And that has bothered me. Really bothered me. Because the church is not to be filled with consumers. It's not to be filled with people who just consume every single thing that's given and says, hey, man, thanks so much. Here's a tip on the way out. You see, listen, listen, let me make it real simple, okay? When you go to a restaurant, you are a consumer. You are there to consume what is offered. You have no responsibility to anyone. You paid for the food, and you expect to receive the food for which you paid for. You expect the service to be prompt and kind. And if so, you will leave a generous tip. If not, you feel no obligation to leave a tip. You feel no obligation to return. And you feel no obligation to tell anyone about it. Right? Absolutely expected. When you go to a movie, you are a consumer. You are there to consume what is offered. You paid for a couple hours of entertainment on the big screen, and you expect to be entertained. If you ordered popcorn, you want it fresh and hot. If you ordered a beverage, you expect it to be filled to the top and ice cold. And you know what? Those environments are designed to attract and engage consumers. But I want you to imagine, Mom and Dad, I want you to imagine, Grandpa, Grandma, your kids coming home for dinner and they treat it like a restaurant or your family is gathered around the TV to watch a movie and they treat it like a movie theater. They eat all your food and then they go online and lead a terrible review. They watch TV with you and your, your family and then they talk about how loud the other family members were because they couldn't hear the TV very well. They go on Facebook and they complain about the temperature of the house or the condition of the bathroom. Mom, how would you feel if your kids did that? Dad, how would you feel if your kids did that? What's the difference? A restaurant is designed to attract and please consumers. A theater is designed to attract and please consumers. A family is designed to love, care, protect, and serve one another. In a restaurant and a theater, you are a consumer. In a family, you are a contributor. Huge difference. And when you read the New Testament, you tell me, is a church closer to a restaurant and a theater or a family? That's what's been bothering me. 
So I want to walk through a story in Matthew 14, commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason I want us to walk through this quickly, so it's going to walk through quickly, many of you who grew up in church, you kind of know the story, is there is one example of why the church exists, or one example, excuse me, of why the church should exist and how the church ought to operate. This is a beautiful example of that. Now, most of us read this story as a miracle. That's how I've read it for years, a miracle. People are hungry. Jesus performs a miracle. He feeds them. Beautiful story, wonderful story. So if you ever happen to be out in the middle of a desert and you're hungry and nobody's around, maybe you can pray and Jesus will give you food. End of the story, wonderful story, encouraging. It is so much bigger than that, so much more than that. It actually gives us a little insight into how, not just that miracles occur, but how miracles occur. Matthew 14. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them and healed those who were sick. Just stop right there before we go any further. Jesus is the head of the church. And when he sees a large crowd of people, he has compassion on those who are sick. When I'm reading this, I just, in my mind, in my soul, in my heart, in my head, all things inside of me just screams at me that the church should always pay attention to the sick people among us and do our absolute best to heal them, not entertain them, not pacify them, not merely comfort them, but heal them. That's what we're supposed to be about. A gathering of people who bring in a gathering of people and of people who are sick and people who are hurting and people who are broken. And when they leave our presence, they are better than they were when they came in and offer healing. Verse 15, that evening his disciples came and said to him, this is an isolated place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. In contrast to Jesus, from our perspective, the needs will always overwhelm us. I look across our city, I look across this congregation, I know the people watching online, and I think to myself, how in the world are we ever going to meet everyone's needs? Just in this congregation alone, we have marital needs, we have financial needs, we have physical needs, we have mental health needs, we have all kinds of needs. How in the world are we ever going to meet them? There are times I just want to say, um, you know, thanks for coming today. Now go find a therapist, go find a counselor, go find a doctor. Go on back into your villages and take care of yourself because I don't have everything for you. But Jesus said to them, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Now this is huge. The story pivots right here. In the past, I thought the need in front of these disciples was simply too great for them. So Jesus performed a miracle, and all the people got fed. End of story. But it is so much more. So much more. The details of how, what happens next, and how what happens next unfolds absolutely the heart of this story. The disciples look at a crowd of people. They look at their supply of food, and verse 17, they replied, 
we have nothing here except five loaves of bread and two fish. And that is why they wanted to send the people home. Listen, listen, listen. I know. I know it's a little early, and some of you had had enough coffee, and the coffee out there I made, so, you know. It's not that great. I thought they wanted to send the people away because they were kind of like, look at all these people, and they're hungry, and we got things to do, and send them on home, Jesus, so we can get on with some other activities that we got planned and let them go home and eat. But that's not why they sent them home. They sent them home because they had compassion for them. They wanted to send them home because they cared about the people. They weren't callous disciples. They weren't hard-hearted disciples. They wanted to send them home because they did not think they had what was sufficient to meet the needs. They said, send them home. We don't have enough food to feed all these people. All we got are five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus, if we had more food, we'd feed them, but we don't. That's all we've got. And I love this line from Jesus. And he said, verse 18, bring them here to me. Have you ever wondered, this is just the way I read scripture. I just ask all kinds of questions. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't say something like this? Because, see, if I, if I had the, the power of Jesus, you know, if I had the magic, right, if I had the miracle-working abilities, I would have said something like this. I would have said, hey, don't worry about it, okay? If I bread two fish, don't worry about it. I'll just create as much as we need. Why didn't he just go, you know, abracadabra or whatever? Why didn't he snap his fingers? Why, why, why didn't he just say, you know what, let there be bread and fish? Why did he say, what do you have and bring what you have to me? Because Jesus works with the church and with what the church brings him. How do miracles happen? He works with the church and what the church brings him. Do you realize that he could have created bread and fish out of thin air and fed the multitudes? But listen to me, that's not how it works. God could speak out of the air and announce the good news of grace to all the world, but that's not how it works. He invites us to go into all the world. God could multiply money without you giving it, but that's not how it works. He invites you to give every week. He could create homes for the homeless, but that's not how it works. He invites us to use our skills and abilities to build homes for people. He could pay this building off instantly. And free us up to do amazing things. But that's not how it works. He invites us to take responsibility. So you know what he did? He took the five loaves of bread and two fish. In verse 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed it, them, and broke the loaves apart. Jesus took... What the little boy and the disciples gave him, 
he blessed it, he broke it, and look at the next line, and gave them to the disciples. He took it and gave it back to the disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds. Next line, Jay. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Do you notice you're giving, taking, giving, taking, blessing, breaking, giving, taking, giving, that's how miracles work. God gives to you, you give back to God. God blesses it, breaks it, gives it back to you, and you give it to the people. Verse 20, everyone ate until they were full and filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. Wow. Man, I have read that and read that and read that and thought, oh, how cool is that? Hung, a bunch of hungry people and Jesus feeds them. That lets me off the hook, doesn't it? Bunch of hungry people and Jesus feeds them. A bunch of hungry people, and Jesus feeds them. And I missed the whole middle part of where he, was re he received what the disciples gave them, blessed it, gave it back to them, and they passed it out. And in the process of them passing it out, he got involved and multiplied it. That's how it works. There is a need. Jesus asks us to accept responsibility. We give him what we have to the best of our ability, and if we don't have it, we go look for it until we do. They had to go find. They had to go find. They had to go find the bread and fish. Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it back to them, to us we then take it and give it to the people who need it. And the people take it. Miracles happen. Everyone's fed. That's how it works. Can I let you in on how this whole thing might have gone down in the modern church era? Sure you can, Scott. You're preaching. Us. Uh, Jesus, the uh, people are hungry. and Let's send them home. And to be honest, I'm a little hungry too. Jesus, no, you don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Me? We don't have anything. But I'll ask around and see what I can find a few minutes later. Jesus, well, did you find anything? Yes, I found one boy's lunch, five loaves of bread and two fish. Awesome. Bring it to me. Actually, I ate it. You ate it? Yes, I, I was hungry, and I forgot my lunch at home, so I prayed, and God supplied me with just enough <clears throat> to eat my lunch today. God is good all the time, isn't he? You know what, Jesus? I think we should encourage all these people to pray to God to meet their needs just like he met mine. The difference in a consumer and a contributor. You know, I've wondered how this story would have been different had the disciples not asked around for a lunch. The disciples didn't have any food. They had to go find it, and they found a little boy who had five loaves and two fish, and that little boy willfully gave it. They didn't take it from him. 
He willfully gave it. What would have happened if he wouldn't have given it? What would have happened had the disciples said, what do you mean we give them something to eat? Jesus, you are off your rocker. We don't have any food. And I'm not going to go around and ask people to give us a little bread and fish. No, thank you. What would have happened had that been the attitude? We don't know. I wonder sometimes what we could accomplish at Forest Park if we were filled with contributors. Hundreds of people who quickly and passionately are willing to give their lunches. Quickly and passionately willing to give what they have, even though it's little, what they have. And say, God, take it and use it and do incredible things with it. And we want to partner with you, God, to watch miracles occur. The answer is we'd have no idea what would happen. We only know what's happened so far. But we have no idea what's on the horizon. And you know what's amazing to me? This little boy who gave his lunch also ate until he couldn't eat anymore. And the disciples who gave the lunch to Jesus also ate until they couldn't eat anymore. Because it says when all of them had eaten and all of them had their fill, there were 12 baskets of bread and fish left over. When everyone contributes what they have, everyone consumes more than they can hold. Consumers versus contributors. A consumer says, I'm going to wrap it up with this right here. A consumer says, what can I take from this experience? A contributor says, what can I give to this experience? A consumer says, who dropped the ball? A contributor says, will someone please pass me the ball? A consumer says, how little can I give and still have all my toys? A contributor says, how much can I give and still pay my bills? A consumer says, is there a group for me? A contributor says, I need to start a group for you. A consumer says, I got a complaint. A contributor says, I got an idea. A consumer says, well, will there be child care? A contributor says, how do I sign up to offer child care to others? Do you see the difference? And when we shift from a consumer mentality to a contributor mentality, God gets involved and does more things than we can ever ask, imagine, or dream. Now, I've learned over time that one of the greatest challenges in front of people preventing them from becoming a contributor is they fear they won't have enough. Well, Scott, I, I, I won't have enough time. I won't have enough money. I won't have enough energy. I won't have enough fun. I won't have enough success. If I become a contributor, I won't have enough. And it is the main reason Jesus did not simply ask the disciples to pass out the bread and fish first. He never said to them, hey, what do you guys got? We got five loaves of bread and two fish. Okay, we'll start passing it out. He didn't do that. He said, give it to me first. 
and he blessed it and broke it and gave it back. When God gets involved with what you give, you will never run out of what you need. Never. I want our band to come. We're going to close in a song. Start with yourself, and you will run out. Start with giving what you have to him, and you will never, ever, ever run low. He is enough. So when our band sings this song, I just want the whole place to just be a time of just reflection, prayer, thinking, and say, God, if that's you, it may not be you. I don't know. I want to move from a consumer to a contributor. And maybe you're already there. Just not telling everybody they're all consumers. I've been a consumer many, many, many times. Still am in certain areas. But maybe this morning, as they're singing this, you just say, God, you have enough for me. So, God, I'm going to take what I have, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take it and give it back to me so that I can give it to others. And when you get involved, we all have more than we need. Let's sing. Sing this with them. So, church, we are going to introduce a new song to you this morning. And, you know, in Scripture we see that God is called by many names. He's called Abba, which means God our Father. He's called El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. But the song we're going to sing is the name of Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And we just heard in the story that Pastor Scott brought that God is enough for us. We just have to bring him what we have, and he will bless it so that we can give that to others. So as we sing this song, if you want to sing along, if you want to stand, if you want to sit, if you want to pray, just take this time to really listen to the words of this song. And we hope today that you will realize that God is enough. We just have to bring what we have because he's, he's already loved us. He's already chosen us. And we are loved more than we could ever imagine. So we're going to sing this together. Than I am right now Wasn't holding you up So there's nothing I can do To let you down It doesn't take a trophy To make you proud I'll never be more loved Than I am right now Going through a storm But I won't go
I don't want to forget how I feel right now on the mountaintop. I can see it so clear what it's all about. So stay by my side till the sun goes down. Don't want to forget how I feel right now. lose sight of that and we're so afraid that if we begin to give we won't have enough if we get involved we won't have enough Father, I wonder how that little boy felt when the disciples came up and began to ask around if anybody had any bread and fish and that little boy gave the little he had he had 
no idea that in just a moment, what he gave was going to be given to the king of the universe. And it was going to be blessed and it was going to be broken. And his lunch literally became the seed that fed thousands of people. And when he gave that lunch, he must have wondered if he was going to eat the rest of the day. He had no idea that not only was he going to eat, but everybody around him was going to eat. And he was going to eat until he was full and there was going to be food left over. You are more than enough. God, we are sorry that we have taken your church and made it a place just to consume, just to sit down, eat, and leave a tip on the way out, to watch a movie and say thanks on the way out. God, this is a family. It's your church. It's your body. It's your movement. It's your kingdom. And Father, may it be filled with people who are contributors and will take what they have and they will willfully and freely give it and watch you take it and do incredible things with it. That's how miracles work. May we be a church filled with contributors. And if we are, we will be a church filled with miracles. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your enoughness. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thanks so much for being with us today. I hope you have an amazing day. Thank you.